You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salek. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, concern is rising after the UK's confirmed virus cases neared 3,000 for a second day in a row. Experts say the increase is much more marked in young people aged 17 to 21, one of whom, of course, are back at college or school. Uh, England's Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Professor Jonathan Van Tam, warned that people must not become complacent. If you look further into the European Union, you can see where case numbers rise initially in the younger parts of the population. They do in turn filter through and start to give elevated rates of disease and hospital admissions in the older age groups. So a warning there from the Deputy Chief Medical Officer of England. It's against that backdrop that the UK Chief Brexit negotiator David Frost welcomes his EU counterpart Michel Barnier to London for another round of talks. It's all over the papers. You won't have missed it. Frost issuing that warning ahead of the discussions, demanding more realism for the EU about Britain's status as an independent country if progress is to be made. Both sides hoping to get a deal by October the 15th, the date of an EU summit. But the EU also warning that the UK is riding roughshod across the uh, divorce agreement, which could jeopardise the prospects for a trade deal. This around yeah. diluting what was already agreed, Roger. Indeed. And now news breaking within the last hour or two that the head of the government's legal department has resigned over suggestions of a row and, and on getting back, re-rowing back on parts of the deal relating to Northern Ireland. That's the issue. Jonathan Jones is the sixth senior Whitehall civil servant to resign this year amid growing tensions between the Prime Minister and the officials at the top of the civil service. That's a story that's really just been breaking, could have a lot of implications. Uh, yeah, I mean, as you say, sixth senior Whitehall servant, and it really lays bare the divisions between uh, the civil service and government at the moment. Although it is Mark Sedwell's last day today, so perhaps a new 
leaf will be turned there if that's even the saying i'm not really sure anyway joining us now is liz savile roberts she's the plied cymru westminster leader it comes at a time when wales has its first local lockdown the county borough of kerfilly going to be placed under restrictions today uh, this is uh, something that the welsh health minister has said is linked to foreign travel among other things uh, so liz i suppose my first question for you is has wales been too relaxed about its quarantine policy and indeed its wider virus policy I think what's interesting in Wales is that people have actually seen, um, of course, health being devolved for the last 20 years. They've, they've really seen the border come into sharp focus. And it, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say for Welsh Government, of course, that they actually had controls over the, regarding the Greek Isles. They'd made a recommendation about the Greek Islands before the UK Government ever did. I am you know, concerned about Caerphilly because um, Welsh Government has, has announced that really people, you know, that they, they are saying should... Uh, more than advising, they're saying that they, they shouldn't be travelling beyond the, the, the borough's borders. Um, but there is an element of uncertainty about their actual powers and what this really means. And um, I think there's a risk of of telling people to do things and then not, not actually having the, the, the powers to enforce it in any shape or form. It still leaves people in some confusion. I suppose the issue in the end is whether people obey the rules. If people do what they're told, even assuming they know what the rules are, as you say, there is confusion. Is it a question really of tougher penalties, trying to make people get into line by doing that? Well, I think the grim reality, when, when you're, whenever you're on the ground, and I see this in the constituency as well, is actually is, is to say that um, you know, local authorities have powers, Welsh government have powers, that their actual means of enforcing them are very low indeed. It's, it's, it's really interesting that Welsh government has said in Caerphilly that uh, if you can work from home, you should, but they've made no measure to close down pubs whatsoever. And they're not either saying in Wales that people should wear face masks in shops. And, of course, you know, it does seem to me that if, if people are looking after each other, that's one of the first things that you can encourage people to do, which is very much accepted in other places. Well, what about calling for people to go back to offices, back to businesses? Is that premature, given these rising uh, virus numbers we're seeing in Wales and indeed across the country? Yeah, and I think there's also an element of, of, of a risk of being sort of perhaps self-satisfied here because so many people can't actually work from offices either. And then, of course, actually it's down to those individual workplaces and, and, and many workplaces, people I've been talking to here in London and back home in North Wales, organisations are just not expecting staff to come back before Christmas. So that's not enforceable. And it does actually run this divide as to those members of, of you know, people out there who can't work in offices, even what are they supposed to do? It's a bit like the political class being comfortable with what they're used to and not thinking about other people's lives. So do you think there's a real difference between perhaps the metropolitan culture where uh, these sort of things are almost built in, whereas in Wales, perhaps, in some parts of Wales, it's just not possible. It's not part of the, the culture yet, and therefore perhaps people are being pushed into it unwillingly. Well, I think it's fair to say that many politicians work from offices. Not many politicians work, say, in, in, on the factory floor or to even the work that the police and prison officers have to do, many key workers. In Wales, of course, many people actually work outside the office where we have a, a high dependency on manufacturing within our economy. And the reality of those people's lives is very different to that which is experienced by many politicians. And I think we need to be alert to that all the time, not just assuming that people can, do, can live in certain ways. Yeah. And I mean, with things going the way they are going, we've seen politicians come out, members of the government come out and say that they're quite keen to avoid a national lockdown, a second national lockdown, which is understandable. Is that something you would rule out? 
I think we need to be able to manage local lockdowns a lot more effectively than we actually are. And if you look at, say, the situation of, of, of Wales, particularly in terms of powers, but this is real in England as well, when the furlough scheme comes to an end, come the end of this month, then the means to keep people at home no longer is there. And to what degree the government is actually going to facilitate people being able to stay at home. Now, I know they have talked about this, but the level that they've offered is not often sufficient, actually, for people to be able to afford to stay away from home. The other thing that we haven't really thought about much, of course, is the, the possibility, even the likelihood, that people won't just be facing one period, possibly, of lockdown or, or quarantine within their own social grouping or their own family grouping. This could come for certain people from different directions more than once. How do we manage that sort of outcome as well? People have to be able to afford to stay home. Or, of course, the incentive for those individuals, completely understandably, is that they're going to need to go to work, even perhaps when they shouldn't be. Liz, let me move you on to a different area, which is uh, inevitably Brexit, of course, because the talk's getting underway uh, this week, this today, in fact, in terms of pushing us towards a point where we have to take into account the deadlines that are rapidly coming up. And now, of course, we do know that a senior government uh, administrator, Jonathan Jones, and the head of the government's legal department, has gone over fears that there'll be a rowback on parts of the uh, Brexit deal. Uh, do you feel that this is a crisis that almost can't be avoided now and potentially uh, also shows up rather big divisions of the heart of government well it does show i think when you've lost um we've gone beyond the first or the second parent to lose we've lost six six senior civil servants um the government's policy of of challenging on the one hand um trying to put the blame, the long tradition of putting the blame on Europe for everything that goes wrong within the government, and also apparently expecting senior civil servants to carry the can has, has run into a wall a bit on this one here. We do, of course, need to see the details. We've yet to see the details of what's now in the UK internal market bill. Um, but it, it doesn't bode well for a government that is looking to push through, possibly to blame COVID as well, um, the idea that we should be becoming accustomed to leaving without a deal at the end of the year. Um, we're running an awful lot of things at a very tense time without really the means to have that much faith in the government's ability to come up with anything capably. Is there not a silver lining in all of this, though? Because some of the concerns that have been raised from some quarters is that if you dilute the withdrawal agreement, if you start going back on what was agreed in Northern Ireland, you put the union at peril. But that presumably plays into the hands of people who are looking for more local control. Well, certainly it'd be very, it's very interesting to see how this actually drives the dividing lines between particularly Scotland and England. I think it's also raised evidently a lot of questions about Northern Ireland and the priority that this government has for, um, for, for, for the Union, which is their problem rather than the minor supply Cymru member of Parliament. But I was been listening to, to other former Tory MPs speaking about um, what is interpreted as being this government's interest in, in state aid. I am very interested in enabling state aid into certain areas, but obviously particularly Wales. At the same time, I'm really concerned with the way that this government, under the, the heavy hand of Dominic Cummings, looks to be centralising so much more control within its own hands. And what that bodes for the future, if you cut away all the checks and balances, I presume this may be one of the things that's concerned Jonathan Jones. If you cut away the rule of law, you're left 
very dependent on these very few powerful people at the middle of government. That doesn't necessarily mean it works particularly well unless you're in with those people at the centre of government. And there is a reason for checks and balances. There is a reason to have the Supreme Court having some check over the executive, which I know this government doesn't like. And although it can be dressed in ways of saying, look, we'll be able to support industry better, whose industry and whose friends will they be supporting? Do you think now, very briefly, that government is functioning as it should? I think that we expect a democracy to answer, to, to behave in a more responsible, more responsible, more answerable way. I think that the, not the creeping, but the galloping centralisation and the, the galloping collection of power, which is obviously what Dominic Cummings intends to do in Number 10, may work well if you like the Tories under this government, but it sets a precedent yeah. which will be with us for a very long time and has the potential to be very dangerous. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics then. And we start with one of the things contributing to that whole, and it's the almost three and a half billion pounds that's been paid out in error or fraud through the furlough scheme. A top official at HMRC telling MPs it's estimated that around five to 10% of the money paid out has been issued wrongly. The scheme has so far cost the government 35.4 billion pounds. Jim Hara telling the Public Accounts Committee it was a planning assumptions, and he said the HMRC was actively looking into 27,000 high-risk cases where they thought a serious error had been made in the amount claimed by an employer. No, it's a bit worrying. But at the same time, of course, you've got to consider that the what would happen if it weren't there? Uh, do, do the dis- mistakes invalidate the whole enterprise? Anyway, meanwhile, we've heard from the Bank of England's chief economist, Andy Haldane. He's warning against extending that scheme because, speaking in a CITAM podcast, Haldane said continuing state support for jobs threatened by the pandemic risks would actually prolong the inevitable without really helping. Of course, uh, there is a background to this. Germany is extending its furlough scheme till the end of 2021. France is considering it. The Chancellor has come under great pressure to continue subsidising wages. But right now, the cut-off, the cliff edge, if you like, is October the 31st. Yeah, and he's long talked, Rishi Sunak, hasn't he, about how internationally this compares very favourably. It's going to be hard to continue making that argument if other countries continue as they are and the UK doesn't. So that decision uh, is going to have to be made pretty soon. And then EasyJet saying it's expecting to fly fewer passengers because consumer confidence has been hit by UK quarantine measures. So if you're hoping to get a flight, looks like you may be in luck. The airline expanding its schedule to 40% of normal capacity last year, but na- uh, last month, sorry, but now says it sees that amount falling. It comes as virus cases on the rise in some European countries, including Greece, France, Spain, all those important holiday destinations. And then yesterday we had the transport secretary adding seven Greek islands to the quarantine list. So if you come back from there to England, you've got to isolate for 14 days. Right. Well, let's talk about that issue to do with tax, because overhanging the debates we've heard about on Brexit, possible extension of the furlough scheme as well, 
is the state of the economy. How do you deal with the huge hole that's opening up in public finances? Tax rises seem pretty much inevitable, but there's been a big pushback on that in Tory circles. What about pensions and the triple lock? What are the options? Well, joining us, I'm very pleased today to discuss this, is Helen Miller, Deputy Director of the Institute of Fiscal Studies. Helen, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. Uh, first of all, just give us some perspective on this. How big a hole needs to be filled? Well, as of yet, we don't really know because we don't know what the overhang of this crisis is going to be. So a lot's going to depend on you know, whether we continue to improve, the economy continues to get better, you know, the government doesn't have to put in any more schemes in place. If that doesn't happen, if we have second waves, more government intervention, then the hole gets bigger. But to give some sense of scale, I think looking at something like, you know, 40 billion, so maybe 2% of GDP, maybe to sort of, a, to sort of fix ideas, something like that wouldn't be crazy. It's also worth pointing out that we're not just looking at a situation where we need to think about paying for the crisis and the, and the overhang from that. Even before this uh, COVID was even a thing, we had an ageing population that was demanding more and more expensive health care, and we had a decade of austerity. So there were already pretty big pressures to say, look, we need to stop spending as much money and reduce our expectations, or we need to uh, raise more money. So kind of COVID is a thing that's focusing minds at the moment, but there's already, already this pressure in the, built in the system that's going to continue because people are going to continue getting older. And in fact, they may even now want even better health care or better benefits because they've seen um, you know, the risks that things like COVID can, uh, uh, can bring. So... You know, I think we should be thinking we probably do need tax rises and we could be looking at some pretty chunky ones. Uh, and, and where's that going to fall? I mean, I feel like in all of the rumbling we've seen in papers, briefings, whatever, a lot of taxes have been mentioned, a whole gamut, really. Where, where do you expect it might end up being? Well, I mean, there's lots of debate to be had because we have lots of different taxes and you can effectively pick which one um, you want to raise. But if the government wants to get some big money, then... You, you aren't going to be able to do that just by taxing, for example, companies or the very, very rich. Um, you're going to have to look at some tax rises that, that affect more of the population. The easy way to get money is to use one of our big three taxes. That's income tax, national insurance or VAT. They, you know, they're big, broad-based taxes. You raise, you know, if you put a penny on one of those, you, you know, you get something like five, six billion. So you quickly bring in some fairly, fairly large sums. But I think the much smarter thing to do would be rather than just go for the easy options, and they might not be easy politically, but the kind of economically easy to um, write the legislation options, would be to take a good hard look at some of our taxes and think about ways we can reform them. Because in whatever tax you pick, um, it's got a design problem. And that's important in all times because it effectively means those taxes are more damaging on economic activity than they need to be. And if we fix them, we could basically raise more revenue at lower cost. And I said, that's, that's important in most times, but a time when our economy is on its knees, that should be particularly important. So to give you just one example, but there are tons, um, there's lots of discussion about capital taxes and capital income taxes. We currently tax business incomes, dividends, capital gains, self-employment income, lower than labour incomes. Now, that's unfair and inefficient for a whole range of reasons. So I think we should sort, sort it out just for those reasons. But say you did want to raise income tax rates on top earners, that's currently harder to do at the moment because people can switch their income into capital incomes. So if you start levelling the playing field across income types, you can raise more money overall if you want to. So again, just one example of where rather than just do the kind of easy thing of shoving up rates, if we did some pretty important technical fixes to the tax base, we could sort of have our cake and eat it. We could have higher taxes but less damaging effect on the economy. But 
what sort of options does he have apart from that? I mean, that, in the end, it seems he's, he's, his prospects are quite limited when it comes to the budget as to what he can tinker with. Um, well, it depends how bold he's willing to be. So I say, if, if, we, if you want to do something this budget, then yes, it's very hard to get things in place. But arguably, now is not the time for big tax rises because the economy is still very weak. What you could do now in the upcoming budget is put in place a roadmap that says, here is what we're going to do in the next five years, four or five years, um, to, to increase but also fix taxes. So again, pick any tax. Council tax, highly regressive, based on very out-of-date property values, we could revalue all properties for council tax purposes and make it at least proportional to uh, house prices, so remove the regressivity. That would um, make a fairer system and you could raise more money. Take VAT. We have a much narrower VAT base than almost any European country, meaning we have more zero rates and more exemptions. They're often put in place as a way to help poor people. They're a horrible way to do that. So we spend about $50 on these zero rates. If we got rid of all of them, we'd raise a fifty billion. Um, so think of things like zero rates on food and children's clothing and books, and people would rightly say, "Well, hang on a minute, that's going to hurt poor people." But we could easily increase benefits and target help where we wanted it most. So you could target whoever you liked to people who are on universal credit, people who are struggling in the job market, whoever you wanted to, and still have money left over because a lot of the benefits of zero rates on food, for example, go to very well-off people who spend a lot of money on food. So, again, another example of where you could just put up rates of VAT or you could do something structural to the tax, which would raise really quite a lot of money. And at the same time, you would um, be able to target your tax system more effectively at, for example, in this case, helping poor people. Um, again, you could pick any one of them. You could think about business rates, uh, stamp duty taxes, um, you know, fuel duty, corporation tax, any of those yeah. ones you could pick and you could do something to fix them. That's really interesting. So uh, sort of a fundamental redesign of some aspects of the tax system. And what about the timeline for this? Is this the sort of thing that's so urgent we're going to need to hear a plan come the budget? Or does the Treasury have a little bit more time to work something out? Well, I think it has, it has time. I, mean, I think doing it now makes so saying something now makes sense for a few reasons. So one, it's early on in the parliament. These are difficult things to do because whenever you basically we have some bits of the tax system that are advantageous to some people and not to others. Therefore, you're going to have to take advantages away from some people. That is politically difficult to do. So doing it at the start of a parliament is going to be easier. I think also if you want to tie it into people's minds with the idea of paying for the crisis, then doing it now while the crisis is fresh in mind makes sense rather than trying to do it in you know five, ten years' time. Um, it's also, I think, good for the markets. So the markets are going to be wondering how um, the government is going to pay for this whole and how it can keep paying, you know, keep affording to borrow so much. And just saying, well, trust us, we'll raise taxes in five years um, isn't super credible. So the more they can set out now a plan that says we will do X, Y and Z um, or we'll consult on X, Y and Z with a view to raising this much money, I think that can help it reassure investors that the government has a credible plan. Helen, let me ask you about the interesting figure that we, we mentioned earlier in the programme, about the amount that seems to be wasted potentially in the furlough scheme, because I'm interested in your in your thoughts on this. $35.4 is the total the government spent on it so far, but 5 to 10% of that money issued wrongly? Is that a reasonable figure to think about, really? Or it seems excessive. Well, I guess it's, it's hard to know because it's not a scheme that we have um, great data on at the moment. So I, as, for, as to how reasonable it is, I, I don't know. It doesn't sound super surprising to me. Um, it could also very possibly be a low estimate. I can imagine it, it being higher. Um, but I think, as you mentioned, it's a scheme that had to be put together very quickly. 
So if we were operating this scheme permanently, I would say absolutely that's that's shocking. We need to fix that and stop the fraud and the error. For a scheme that had to be turned out of the door, you know, within a matter of weeks, it was always going to be the case that there were options for fraud and, and that it was poorly targeted. I mean, even ignoring the fraud, the scheme didn't help everybody who needed help. So, for example, it helped those people who were completely stopping work, those people who had to cut their hours, maybe who halved their hours to look after their children but continued working, got nothing. So there were a whole bunch of issues with the scheme that caused by the fact that it had to be uh, you know, gotten out the door quickly. That's not a reason to go back and say, therefore the scheme was a failure, because I think even you yeah. know, put in a situation again, we couldn't necessarily have done better. So obviously we should look at it and we should evaluate it and we should work out how, how effective the scheme was. But the fact that there was fraud per se doesn't lead me to think that it was you know, a failed scheme. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.